Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world to get perfect games by Puerto Rico. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. And we couldn't even get a base runner. It was an honor, honestly, to get a perfect game by Jose De Leon. What a guy. Um, and of course, Edwin Diaz. The walk-off perfect game is not something I thought I would necessarily see in this World Baseball Classic, although maybe it should have been more on my radar. Uh, that is one of the things we saw in World Baseball Classic action over the last few days. We're going to start this episode of Baseball Barbacast with a little WBC check-in as we have our first semifinalist in Team Cuba. Uh, we'll review some of the other stateside pool stuff. And then it is time to finally start previewing the Major League Baseball season. I know Jake and I have not really been watching a whole lot of Major League Baseball spring training recently, but the season is very, very, very soon. And so we're going to start going division by division and previewing this whole league. But Jake, let's if, do WBC first. Well, I was going to say, if you are listening to this in the future, maybe like it's, it's March 24th, just skip ahead. You already know who won the WBC. Lucky right. you. Congrats. If you, just, if you just want to learn about like Gene Segura and the Marlins, skip ahead. Maybe we'll put a timestamp in the description below. But the time is now and the WBC is very much thriving. Early this morning, Jordan, you woke up at the crack of dawn to watch the Australia hitteroos fight valiantly against Team Cuba but fall Oh, so short. Yes. Uh, I decided, I know we had a really good game go late last night, but I decided, it really just hit me yesterday, like, wow, one of Team Australia or Cuba is going to be in the semifinals in Miami. And the prospect of either of those and seeing what that game would look like to get there was was too enticing to not wake up to. I'm, I'm certainly excited for tomorrow's Italy-Japan game, but this too with you know the history with with both of these programs in, in very different ways, uh, these 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 national teams and it was a great game. I mean, you know, Australia took the lead early, Cuba bounced back, and it seemed like the Cuban offense was could maybe start to pull away, but the Aussie bullpen hung in there. But ultimately, what I think we learn and have to accept at this point, and why honestly Cuba might have a chance to win two more games, is the fact that their top four or five pitchers are pretty freaking nasty. And while the depth obviously is not there for a full 162-game season, um, and obviously the offensive lineup is nowhere near what it was in past tournaments, 
It is just enough, and they have enough guys that for one game with rest, that is a really, really dangerous pitching staff, and that'll be true in the semifinals as well. So uh, very impressed with Team Cuba. And let's go on Australia quickly because Cuba will be thinking about moving forward. What a fight. Uh, first time for Australia to get out of the group stage, of course. And they they were right there, man. They absolutely could have won this game. It's not like there's any, oh, you know, could have, would have, should have. Oh, this, this could have been like, they it, they lost. Like it happens, you know, Cuba was the better team and it's still really cool to see this team, you know, show us that we should not have been doubting them and putting them at the bottom. That was completely wrong. Getting one win away, sorry, getting one run away from the, from the semifinals without a single MLB player is ridiculous. And it's not the situation like, you know, Cuba only has, I guess, two MLB players, but they could have a bunch more guys in Japan who maybe one day will come over, et cetera, et cetera. Like, these are the best Australian players in the world, except for Liam Hendricks, who is currently going through, you know, cancer recovery. Mm -hmm. And they took Team Cuba to the absolute brink. What a heroic showing from the from the hitter ruse. And it's great because, you know, 10-ish years ago, MLB pumped some money into the Australian Baseball League to try and develop the game down there. And it has clearly worked to some extent, right? There is legitimate development going on down under in regards to baseball. Curtis Mead, who is one of the top prospects in in all of baseball, is going to come up this year at some point with the Tampa Bay Rays. And he's going to be another uh, data point in that development. And it's just really cool to see baseball flourish in uh, different types of places. Speaking of last night, Great Britain. Mexico. I stayed up and watched this and therefore did not watch the game this morning because I had to catch those Z's. Unbelievable performance from Great Britain falling two to one to Team Mexico in an absolute nail biter, tying the game, I believe, in the seventh inning on an infield single from BJ Murray. And the pitching from Great Britain held Mexico in check all night long despite some absolutely horrid defense from the Brits, but in the end, they fell just short to Team Mexico. Yeah, and and I got to say, I think uh, Pool C in general has been way more balanced than we thought. You know, we we, we, we knew Pool A was going to be a fight anyone could come out of it. They've all finished two and two, and we're not going to have a five-way tie in Pool C, but um, just all these results that have gone not the way we expected or games that have gone close than we expected and blowouts that have happened that, you know, Canada destroys Great Britain, but the USA doesn't, right? Like there's been all these different and then Great Britain only barely losing to Mexico. Like all these different results have been really fascinating to, to watch um, even in these individual games. So shouts out to Great Britain. Uh, they're done. You know, they, they played their last game. They won't advance. Uh, but they have a chance to advance as the fourth place team if USA can beat Columbia tonight. And that is huge because that means they do not have to requalify for the next WBC in 2026. That means they will get more guaranteed funding from uh, from their federation in, in, in order to you know, continue to pursue and grow baseball in, in Great Britain. And uh, let, me, let me tell you, man, Harry Ford, what a show. What a, what a cool opportunity for him to just be, you know, the best player on the team at age 20 and and to show out and to hit a couple homers and 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 to get everyone's attention. It was really fun to watch. It feels like this entire tournament and this is probably the wrong takeaway. It's been a pretty good advertisement for Jazz Chisholm to play next time around, Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, 
uh, certainly some questions about whether the Bahamas ever have their own team at some point. That will be that could throw a huge wrench into what the Great Britain team looks like, but that is a, a much longer term question. But I agree with you. I agree with you. There was, I mean, Chavez Young was super fun to watch. Oh my god! Um, all, a lot of the Bahamians on this team were, were were a real a real joy, even without Jazz. So Great Britain, we salute you. Israel. Hmm. So, um, one <laughs> the the mood we had on Monday. <laughs> on Monday, it was like full Am Yisrael Chai, like full. You know, uh, this Israel is us together, right? Yeah, Israel's a baseball country, always has been. Uh, since then, Israel has played, I believe, fifteen innings of baseball, um, and they have had one base runner. Rakakad, one base runner. That now look, I don't know a lot about ball. But in my opinion, that is the wrong strategy. Mm-hmm. I think more than one base runner in 15 innings is probably the way to go. But big shouts out to Blue Jays prospect Spencer Horwitz, who got Israel's one hit last night against the Dominican Republic. Without and that dribbler up the middle, the amount of shame I would be feeling this morning would be otherworldly. And had the, what is it, the game tying hit in the game against Nicaragua. So Spencer Horowitz, definitely he might make his ability to be with the Blue Jays this year. But um, I will say we do just talked about Cuba. Oh, I underrated their pitching. Um, I, this sounds insane to say because I know they just got run ruled in both of these games also. But the pitching has been way better than expected and the hitting has been way worse. I looked at this Team Israel lineup and I was like, hey, it's not bad, right? Like, we've got some guys in the upper minors that have done well. You've got some big leaders like Jock. You've got some veteran guys. Like, this is not the worst lineup in the tournament. And they uh, instead have performed as such. We got a text from uh, sometimes producer of the show, Andrew Emmer, the other day, who said, quote, unfortunately, it's now confirmed what we all feel feared. Puerto Rico is better at baseball than a bunch of American Jews from the from suburban Massachusetts and the music director at City Winery. Yes, that is the thing, right? Like when Team Israel went to Asia in 2017 and made it out of the group, it was incredible. But it was also like understandable. Whereas now that I'm watching it and I could take my blinders off, it's like they weren't going to beat Juan Soto and Julio Rodriguez and <laughs> the Dominicans. And- but the, the Nicaragua game ages incredibly, right? Yeah. I mean, Garrett Stubbs now looks like, you know, Johnny Bench. So, <laughs> And Garrett Stubbs, uh, who was who got injured and is taken off the roster, was immediately replaced by his little brother, yes. CJ Stubbs, who is yes. also a catcher. I believe that that decision was made because CJ Stubbs is an Astros prospect, and he was like, like two hours road. up the road yeah. in West yeah. Palm Beach. Uh, but but CJ Stubbs is—I mean, he's hardly totally the least qualified. He played pretty well in the minors last year. Like he's not a total nobody, but it's but true. It was there was funny. something hilarious from going not on the roster to starting at catcher and batting fourth against Roancy Contreras. Exactly, like, and that's where you know that 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 was a tough. Let alone catching people you've never met before. <laughs> yes, let's quickly discuss Jacob Steinmetz, who the guy mm-hmm. who started. Sorry, the child who started for Team Israel against the Dominican Republic. Steinmetz is the first ever Orthodox Jew drafted in MLB. He was a third round pick in 2021 by the Arizona Diamondbacks. 
And he was given the start here against the Dominican Republic. And there was a lot made about uh, Mitch Bratt, the child who Canada threw against the U.S. And they're like the exact same age. They're like basically both born July 2003. <laughs> yeah. But Jordan, why was Steinmetz's performance even wilder? You know, we could compare, oh, which lineup is better, DR versus USA. But Mitch Brandt did spend basically all of last season at low A, pitching really well. He had an ERA under three. He made 20 starts. Like, he had faced adult professional players, you know, even in low A, and, and succeeded, right, and done well. Um, and also, prop. well, I guess he's a little different, right, because he came from Canada and he went down to Georgia for high school. But the point is, is like he had faced some level of pro competition for a whole season. Jacob Steinmetz had never pitched outside of the Arizona Complex League, which is the backfields. You're on the backfields, right? Yes, they keep stats, but you're basically facing other 19-year-olds, basically exclusively, right? Other 19-year-olds, other 17-year-olds, right? Like, you're facing other kids. And there, are no, eight, yeah. there are no fans. There's no walk-up music. There's right. no... It's not a baseball stadium. Like, it, nope. it is a different thing. Nope, you're not wearing like a dip, like it, yes, it is a different thing. You're, they're basically practice games where they keep the stats, right? Um, and he had a 7.88 ERA last summer in the Arizona League, right? And so for him to get this assignment and say, hey man, go go have fun, which is clearly what they did with Mitch Bratt too. It's not like, oh, go go beat them, you know? <laughs> like go, go have this experience. And we saw what happened with Mitch Bratt and like, that's extremely understandable. Duh, right? Like that's that that could happen to Jacob Steinmetz, but instead, Jacob Steinmetz somehow managed to almost make it through two whole innings against one of the best lineups international baseball has ever seen, including uh, strikeouts of Manny Machado um, and Jeremy Pena and I believe Gary Sanchez. Um, it was marvelous. It was hilarious, and he should be extremely proud. It. Made some waves. We got a text from a current MLB pitcher being like, this Orthodox kid's pretty good. Like, I like his stuff. Right. It's And you could see on the faces of Machado and Juan Soto when they Soto swung and missed against Steinmetz. And he kind of looked at him and was like, that's pretty good. Right. Because when, when you're Soto and Machado, like you're in the pregame meeting and the coach says, yeah, we're facing a 19-year-old. Orthodox complex Jewish kid who has a 788 ERA in the complex <laughs> league, you're expecting one thing, right? And Soto and Machado realized pretty quickly, like, he's throwing 94 up yeah. in the zone with some good carry and, yeah. you know, the breaker's not bad, yeah. you know? And great. so it was really, really fun to watch so. that. Maybe Team Israel can get two base runners in their final game today against Venezuela. Last thing to talk about, I spent... Quite a bit of time on the most recent podcast, uh, lambasting Team USA and American baseball culture for our lack of shits given about the WBC. I have spent the last 48 hours thinking about that and talking to people about that, all of which has confirmed what I believed. And Max Scherzer had an interview where he talked about pitching in the WBC. And whatever the reason is, whatever uh, whether it's good or bad, USA definitely cares less about the WBC. That's fine. However, they're also the best team here. And they proved that by taking Canada and burying them uh, deep beneath a pile of runs uh, in their most recent game. It, it was just an example of, oh, right, they're an all-star team. Yep. And now they have the opportunity to 
win the group still um, yeah. tonight uh, against Colombia, which I think they very well might. I, I even though I've never heard of the Colombian pitcher. I maybe have more faith in him than Mitch Bratt in a weird way, just from the standpoint of again, I should have, I guess I could have could have looked more into uh, Luis de Avila, um, who looks to be okay. So he's twenty one, so he's a you know an aged veteran <laughs> compared to Mitch Bratt. Um, but the point is, is they very well might steamroll Columbia tonight. But I, I'm done predicting what the fuck's going to happen in this pool because uh, there have been so many games that have not gone the way I expected. But either way, I agree with you. They did exactly what they were supposed to do against Canada, and now at least the offense can kind of get rolling. Lance Lynn was awesome too. So got to give credit to him. Five innings, right? I think he would five innings in, in under the 65 pitch limit, which is really impressive. Two awesome games tonight. And that is the Dominican Republic against Puerto Rico in what will be just incredible entertainment. These two countries from a baseballing perspective hate each other. Okay. There is like, le- like legit. There's, there's, there's like, Sometimes it's real beef. Sometimes it's fun beef, especially considering these are, I believe, the two biggest Latin American um, diaspora in the continental United States, Mm. like in terms of uh, the Puerto Rican community, like in New York and in Miami Mm. and the Dominican community in New York and in Miami. Like this is a big, big deal. And Venezuela is like a better team and better like baseballing country right now but if we're talking about like what this means to these two groups of fans i think this is the spiciest game of the tournament and uh as we mentioned um before when we previewed this pool we knew that one of venezuela puerto rico or dominican was not going to be happy to be missing out you know, on the quarterfinals. And it's set up as well as we could possibly hope. The last game of pool play being these two huge rivals playing for that final spot. So that'll be amazing. And then Mexico, Canada was essentially also the same thing um, as for as for getting into that that final spot. And we'll, you know, we'll see what happens with uh with the US and Colombia is kind of assuming US wins that game. But that game's at three, three o'clock in the afternoon, actually. So um, yeah, so you know, by the time you're listening to this, those games are probably already getting going. Um, but both of those games will be absolutely tremendous. I want to fact check myself quickly. Uh, largest uh, Latin American populations in the U.S. I forgot about Mexico, which uh, is 61 percent of. <laughs> I was like, the are population. we not counting the one that's our neighbor where there's a lot? <laughs> it goes Mexico, Puerto Rico, Cuba, El Salvador, Dominican Republic. Hmm. Um, but I would which imagine the- that in New York City. Where I am and have oh, East Coast bias. East Coast, yeah, New York bias. That makes sense. Dem- but allow that to be a good transition to the final WBC point before we take a break and begin our NLEs preview, which is, holy shit, Team Cuba is about to play in Miami on Sunday. And this is something that is going to be really unlike anything we've ever seen as far as an international baseball scene and stage and scenario. Uh, we don't know who they are playing yet. They will play likely against the winner of Venezuela and the runner-up in Pool C. Um, so that could be the U.S., that could be Venezuela, that could be whatever. Uh, but the point is, is that Cuba will be playing in Miami, I believe, on Sunday. And th- I mean, that's just... We will talk more about it on Friday, likely, on Friday's episode. Because again, we're going three times a week. Uh, pretty lit. <laughs> but I just uh, want to yeah, say, I'm, it yeah. is incredibly complicated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... What we have seen so far from a lot of the Latin American fan bases in Miami 
and in Arizona is this huge, overwhelming level of kind of like unconditional support for the team, which makes sense, right? It's a very rare opportunity to see the team. Team Cuba in Miami is way more complicated than that because of how the Cuban-American community interacts with the Cuban national team and with the state of Cuba as a whole. I and Jordan, Jordan and I, do not, as of right now on Wednesday, March 15th, feel comfortable getting into that or explaining any of that to you. Over the next two days, I will make quite a number of phone calls to try and get a basic grasp on how that dynamic works, or maybe we'll have someone on to talk about it. I, it is so complex and so complicated and has its, I, I just, I, I, like I, yeah, I'm no so, words. but the I'm podcaster so has no words. <laughs> I'm so fascinated by it and I'm really curious to see how it plays. Right. right. And we will have, uh, we have time to, to kind of figure that out over the next few days. Um, but looking forward to it no matter what. And also, Curious if our uh, our hero Yoannis Cespedes actually does rejoin the team as he claimed he would uh, with them coming back. Um, we'll see what happens there. So as always, he continues to mystify us. But we'll leave the WBC chat there as we have a full division to preview. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we will begin the season previews by talking about the National League East. The Pool C of MLB. Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick hosts the SiriusXM original podcast, Black Diamonds. The Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were, and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Hear stories of the leagues and legends that shaped sport, culture, and society. That's why the museum is so important. It's like, we are never going to forget you. Episodes of the award-winning Black Diamonds are now available wherever you get your podcasts. We're not talking about balls and strikes. We're talking about your life. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mitz. That's Jordan Schusterman. Let's preview a baseball season. What do you say, son? Sounds good, man. Uh, it is coming up, and we should probably start talking about these teams. I know we did so much offseason content in terms of reviewing all the transactions and all the players that change teams or stay on their teams. But what that means is we haven't talked that much about just the really good players that are already on these teams. And especially for some of these teams that were not in the postseason last year because we didn't do a podcast until the very end of the regular season. So I am so excited to start looking ahead to the 2023 regular season. Jake, how are we going to preview each division? We are going to go team by team. We are going to spend more time on the good teams than the bad teams. We are going to go in order of projected win totals on fan graphs. We're going to tell you what happened to each team a year ago. We're going to talk about their winter, who came in, who left. We're going to go through the, the starting lineup rotation and their bullpen based upon the fan graphs projected uh, lineup on roster resource. And then... We will ask five questions about this team for the 2023 season. We will answer some of them. We will tell you who on each team is their barometer bonds, their Barry Bonds player, which guy is going to be the best benchmark for how this season goes for the team. We have called that barometer bonds because we think that is funny. 
And then we will present the Vegas over under and we will pick over or under. Those are the two options. But before Those are we two options, keep it simple. Uh, but yes, before we get to our five teams, and again, we are going to go in order from worst to first in terms of projected teams. Let's talk about just what does this what does this division mean to us? We are beginning with the National League East. And just to kind of set the stage for what this division makes us feel, makes us think about when we say National League East. So go ahead and start. You're, you're obviously quite familiar with, with uh, many of these teams. So, so where would you like to begin? I just think it's amazing the Marlins have never won. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Like really try and understand. They've been around since 1993. I understand yeah. the division has only been around since what, 1994. Uh, so they have never won the NL East in all 30 years. Yeah. They have never won the NL East. That is like statistically impossible. I don't think it will happen this year. Again, they have won two World Series both times. They won the wild card. But the fact that they are division titleists just fires me up. Related to that, I would say, is that the kind of constant evolution of the rivalries within this division because, you know, when the Nats were really, really good for a nice long stretch there, like them and when they were playing the Braves and, and the Phillies where all the Phillies fans would come down, you know, to Nats Park and all these little things. And now the Nats like so fast, like sped run their way to the bottom that they're just now overhanging out with the Marlins. And, and the Marlins, like, here's a question. Who's the Marlins biggest rival? <laughs> Themselves. <laughs> Okay, their so, own their own fan base. Yeah, so uh, that is that is uh, the other uh, you know bizarre funny thing about that. And then the other obvious point to make about this division is uh, we have two of the the more uh, freewheeling owners that we have in all of MLB in, in in Steve Cohen and John Middleton, and them versus the corporation uh, <laughs> incredible core building of Atlanta versus whatever the hell is going on in Miami and Washington. Is just a very, very funny balance of, of power, I would say. Um, and then I think the last thing as we kind of move towards reflecting about last season as we preview these teams is, of course, that last year the Mets and Braves won 101 games and the Phillies went to the World Series. So that is uh, creates a very fun dynamic coming into this year and I think really explains everything about kind of how this offseason went and, uh, and, and what we can expect moving forward. Let's begin with the national team. No, not Team USA. The Nationals team last year, the Washington Nationals went 55 and 107. They traded away Juan Soto. And besides Joey Meneses turning into a god out of nowhere, their season was an absolute disaster. Yes. Uh, and they didn't even get the top pick. To show for it, they will be picking second thanks to the new MLB draft lottery. But yeah, man, they, I mean, they, they did it. They, they traded Juan Soto. So that's the thing that they made the decision to do. And I think a lot of that was in the cloud of, uh, oh, well, time to turn the page. We're going to get new owners. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going to rebuild the farm. And instead, we now are left with a very, very strange organization and roster. Um, but where, what, what is that roster? What has changed about this roster? The Soto had the trade happened last, last summer. So what has changed about the roster since the end of the season? They have gone out and picked up a few, we'll call them mid-season trade candidates. Corey Dickerson, Jimer Condelario, who is hilariously playing for the Dominican team right now and looks pretty good. 
Dom Smith from the Mets and Trevor Williams, friend of the show from the Mets on a, I believe, a two-year deal. Mm -hmm. Cesar Hernandez, Luke Voigt, and the uh, eternal Nelson Nelson Cruz are out the door. But let me just run through their projected lineup because I would gander that maybe you haven't heard of anybody. Lane Thomas in right field, Corey Dickerson in left, Victor Robles in center field, Kybert Ruiz behind the plate, first base is Dom Smith, second base Luis Garcia, shortstop the young C.J. Abrams, and third base is Condelario. The rotation will be something of a jambalaya. Patrick Corbin, the worst pitcher in baseball a year ago. Jojo Gray, friend of the show. Trevor Williams. Mackenzie Gore, who I ran into at a coffee shop in San Diego during the NLCS. And Paolo Espino, who uh, he did not he did not win, right? Nope. Uh, he almost set the record for most innings in a season without a win last year, 113 and a third innings. 42 games he appeared in, 19 starts, and did not come away an official winner once. Names in the bullpen, Kyle Finnegan, Carl Edwards Jr., Hunter Harvey, Erasmus Ramirez. One of these guys is going to be irrationally good, probably, and will get traded. And then the last thing to mention is that Steven Strasburg is on the I.L., Ah, yeah. So he didn't even really make it to spring training this year. Um, I mean, this is just like at this point, one of the sadder injury sagas that we have in the sport. And uh, yeah, I don't, at this point, I really don't know if we'll ever see him pitch again. And that's really depressing, regardless of how much money he is uh, being paid. Um, It just sucks. And I don't even, it's just really depressing. And like, this is, you know, what happens with pitching sometimes. And this is the worst possible outcome for this second half of his career and it's really sad so uh, i don't know how much i mean (laughs) like they were probably heading towards this rebuild anyway it's not like this is the reason why they had to turn it all over like this roster was in shambles and this farm was in shambles anyway but it certainly expedited things when your you know world series mvp is completely unable to pitch for the every season since he uh you know did that in the world series like if strasburg and corbin are good in 20 and 21 we're looking at potentially a different trajectory for the timeline of tearing things down right i think that's certainly notable here are the five questions we have for the 2023 washington nationals one will joey Meneses hit 75 or 85 home runs two Can the young big leaguers like Ruiz, Garcia, Abrams, Jojo Gray, Mackenzie Gore, can those guys take steps forward? Three, who are the trade deadline candidates? Four, who will be the all-star representative? Remember, every team has to have one. And five, what does the leadership of this club look like this time next year? New GM, new manager, new owner. Mr. Schusterman, where would you like to begin? I am definitely most focused on the young big leaguers because as fun, if you followed the Nats on Twitter, you know that they're pumping the next wave. All those guys they just traded for, James Wood, right? Guys they just drafted, Elijah Green and Brady House, right? Guys they traded for Robert Hassel, even Christian Vaccaro, who they just gave whatever $5 million, you know, out of out of the Dominican Republic. Like, These are the names that they are projecting as like the next core. But they do have these young players that have shown flashes of success in the big leagues. And I think Jojo Gray is the one I'm most interested in because he was basically a diet version 
of Garrett Cole last, a super die version of Garrett Cole, in that he was actually pretty good. He just gave up so many fucking home runs. Like more, his home run per nine was so much higher than every other starter in the league. And but the stuff is there. The strikeouts were there. The athleticism is there. This is a dude that was a Division II shortstop not that long ago and is now capable of being a good big league pitcher. But at the same time, the Nats have basically the worst track record of developing starting pitching. And so I want to see if they can figure out a way to get the most out of him, to get the most out of Mackenzie Gore. Kate Cavallo just went down with an injury. Hopefully that's not serious. But like that has to happen or they're going to have no chance anytime soon. That is related to the last question I just mentioned, which is what does the leadership of this team look like next year? The manager, GM, and ownership situation are all a little bit intertwined, but it's important to note that the Soto trade last year, while it did feel like a turning of the page, with all due respect to Mike Rizzo, who built a contender and won a World Series title and whatever, this is an organization that is currently living in the past. They are so far behind the eight ball from a player development perspective, that it is going to hamper their ability to rebuild until that changes. And that could be with Rizzo in charge, right? That is totally yeah. possible. He just They just have to hire a new player development apparatus because they have all this young talent. I just don't have faith in this current group of this current leadership group to develop that young talent on a timeline that makes sense. Yeah, I, it does seem like there have been some changes, certainly on the analytics side, they're moving a little bit more in that direction. But again, they're starting from so far behind um, that it's going to take a while. It's going to take a, a while. You could say the same thing about what's happening in Detroit. We've kind of talked about that. I'm sure we'll talk about that on that preview. We got to talk about Joey Meneses for a couple minutes here because what he did last year was so amazing, being in the minors for 10 years, coming up and having a 165 OPS plus. I'm just fascinated by this, not just because he is maybe amazing, but what do you do with that? You know, he's third. What is he? Thirty-one. Um, is he? Tr is he amazing trade bait? Is he actually supposed to be like almost like this? It's it's just strange because you don't necessarily always see the terrible teams strike gold on guys like this that often. Like you see, of course, the Max Muncy's of the world and the good teams that develop these these you know castoffs into great players that can then be role players on good teams. <laughs> Joey Menez is just showing up and immediately being their best player by far puts them in a very strange spot. I imagine they're going to roll with him as long as they can. Of course, they have however many years of control, which is funny for a 31 year old. But I hope he's real, man. I, I'm he's been he's been so fun to watch, and obviously no one was watching him down the stretch last year because it's the Nats. But I hope he's legit, and and I hope that they can they can build around him. I mean, I know it sounds goofy, but it is cool that they found something in Mike like that. I agree with you. I think if I'm the Nats, I am capitalizing on that and flipping him yeah. the second I get a good offer because. I, I, this, I don't want to besmirch Joey Meneses. Like, I think he is real. He's not 165 OPS plus real. Yeah. Okay. Right. I oh, just, we'll see come July. Like, this is a good question. Maybe what is his OPS plus at the trade deadline? Well, this is the <laughs> thing. Like, I am just thinking of Brian LaHare. Maybe that's not fair. But, like, that is a data point. Yeah. And if I'm the Nats and another team needs a bopper and they're going to offer me, like, a couple of real prospects for Joey Meneses, that's found gold. Yeah, no, I I agree, and we'll we'll see if uh, if they if they want to do that. Um, would you let's bet talk on what's oh, like? Yeah. Would you bet on Manesis or the field for, for their the All, -Star? All Star rep? Yeah, I man, I guess I probably would bet on him. 
I don't know. It's usually safer with the bad teams to bet on a pitcher, honestly. Um, so I think I would still take the field, but that's that's a good right. That's that is that is maybe the exact question. It's like him or Kyle Finnegan. Yeah. Or, you know, or like whatever. A, if if one of the good, you know, if 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 you know Josiah Gray is is like has like a three five ERA and like that's and with a bunch of strikeouts, like he <laughs> still might be the answer. We just saw Paul Blackburn, right? Right. You know, Paul Blackburn is, is a good example there. One of my favorite things in baseball, which is a decent transition to the Marlins here in a second. Is that Sandy Alcantara was an all-star like a year before he should have been in 2019, where he was like, he went six and 14 with a 388 ERA and made the all-star team because the Marlins sucked. And then yeah. two, three but years he, later, he looked like an all-star. The numbers weren't there yet, but he definitely looked like an all-star. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And so that's a situation where you could imagine some of their young players also looking like an all-star. All right. Last couple things for the Nationals. Barometer Bonds, who is their Barry Bonds this year? Barrow Bonds. Barrow Bonds, their Barrow Bonds this year. Uh, well, let's go with C.J. Abrams. I know I just talked about Josiah Gray, but Abrams is the one that not that long ago, the ceiling on this guy was through the roof, right? And the Padres have had mixed results trading away their prospects. Sometimes they've been right, and sometimes they've obviously blossomed elsewhere. This one is very interesting because... The tools are insane. He's one of the fastest players in the league. His defense is kind of inconsistent, but I do believe there's more offensive potential there. I'm just worried that he is basically being forced to figure it out at the big league level where he really is another guy who really has not played that much in the minor leagues. Um, so I think the talent is there. It, maybe it's a little unfair to put this on him this season already, but if he's awesome, you know, a lot of things start to kind of click into place, I would say, for this work. He had a 1.7% walk rate last yeah. year. Yeah, him and Luis Garcia were not particularly interested in bases on balls. Correct. And they don't need to turn into Derek Barton or anything, but like 1.7 <laughs> is really low. Yeah, you better be, you better have a, a completely nuts uh, contact rate. Like you better be putting the ball in play so often to never, ever walk. And he could. He could develop into a hitter like that. But it's a little early to expect that. Absolutely. Um, all right. Vegas over under is 59 and a half. We don't bet on baseball, but it is still a fun conversation topic. 59 and a half, Jake Mintz. Again, they lost so many games. They only got to 55 last year. I think I would still take the slide over here, but what do you think? Uh, under. I okay. will take the under here, mostly just because of the division that they're playing in. Yeah. The Marlins are going to be not a joke. The Phillies, yeah. Mets, and Braves are like three of the best teams in the world. And the Nats are going to trade away some of their competent players at the deadline, like Candelario or Corey Dickerson. And I just don't think Patrick Corbin will get any better. Yeah. And as much as I like JoJo Gray, I think even if he gets better, he's still going to give up a lot of bombs. This will not be the last time I mention this, but we have to mention the scheduling also. Not playing the division as much this year. Balanced schedule should help teams in loaded divisions like this at least a little bit. Of course, they're still playing them more than the other teams, um, but it's not quite as brutal as it would have been in the past. So I'll take the slide over, but this will be a bad team. All right, let's move on to the Miami Marlins, who uh, I, I don't know if we mentioned with, with the Nationals, but the Nationals were projected for 66 wins for fan graphs again. I wouldn't go that high. I would just go over 59 and a half. The Marlins Fangraphs has projected at 80 and 82. 
And what happened last year, Jake? Because they didn't win anywhere close to 80 games. They went 69 and 93. Chaz Chisholm was a revelation, an electric factory for about two months. And then he got hurt. And that was it. Big acquisitions they made uh, the offseason prior in Avisael Garcia, Jorge Soler, Jacob Stallings, Joey Wendell. The over four. Just total flops across the board. Bright spot, Sandy Alcantara won the Cy Young. Pretty cool. And a lot of good development from the young starting pitchers. Their winter was pretty interesting. In came Gene Segura, Luisa Rise, acquired for Pablo Lopez. They signed Jose Iglesias. They signed Yuli Gurriel, which is funny. They added Johnny Cueto to that rotation. And then Matt Barnes and H.J. Puck in the bullpen. Some familiar faces going out the door. Brian Anderson, who Jordan wrote on here twice. Uh, J.J. Blade, Miguel Rojas, and Pablo Lopez. Running through their projected starting lineup. What do you think is the best way to do it? Should I do like the defensive order? Should yeah, I, I think do... just the, the, the at the positions because the lineup, the actual order of the lineup is okay. who knows. Yeah. Then I'll go like this. Behind the dish is going to be Jacob Stallings. First base will be Garrett Cooper. Second base, Luisa Rise, who they traded for. Joey Wendell will uh, be the shortstop, I Maybe. guess, against righties. And Jose Iglesias, I guess, against lefties. Third base will be Gene Segura, moving over from second where he's played his whole career. And the outfield will be Brian De La Cruz, who we like in left jazz. Chisholm moving to center field, which we should talk about. Right field will be Avisael Garcia. And the DH is Jorge Soler. The rotation will be Alcantara, Jesus Lazardo, Johnny Cueto, Trevor Rogers, Edward Cabrera, with a number of other top pitching prospects potentially making their debut at some point this season, including Yuri Perez, Braxton Garrett, Max Meyer, I believe, will be out right for a while with TJ. Uh, and remember Sixto Sanchez? I don't. The bullpen is going to be Dylan Floro, Tanner Scott, Matt Barnes, who they acquired for Richard Blyer and AJ Puck. Those are your 2022 Miami Marlins. Jordan, run us through the big questions with this group. Yeah, so everything starts and ends with Jazz. Um, it already would have were he still playing a normal position. Instead, he's like, yo, I'm going to be the center fielder now. And the Marlins are like, sweet. That's totally what we had in mind. Somewhere in between that is what happened, it seems like. I don't know exactly why this was like the obvious solution to them. At the same time, I love it. We love that the Marlins give us weird shit to talk about. As we've talked, we talked about this at the time, right? My general take on this is if I'm betting on a random athlete that has never played the outfield before to figure out center field, Jazz would be on the shortlist. At the same time, it is a lot to ask of him, no matter how confident he is, and he is as confident as it gets in the major leagues, of course. Um, but if the point of it is to force Joey Wendell into the lineup, it never made any sense to me. And so now it's also a matter of can he stay healthy and is center field going to keep him stay healthy? That's the other scary part of it. Right. We're taking a young player with a bad back and having him flop around in the outfield. Um I'm not a doctor, but that doesn't seem like the best way to go. And that really is the whole thing. And that's like our the biggest question for the season is, can he stay healthy enough to be like a six-win player and be super famous and carry this Marlins team to competency? Because the thing with Jazz is like, he's on the cover of MLB The Show, right? 
He's doing interviews on the field before the World Series. He is as charismatic and as freaking cool a baseball person as we've had in this century. He is that. He is different in that way. None of that matters if he plays 60 games a year, right? And some of that is out of his control, and I'm not like blaming Jazz Chisholm for getting injured. But the reality is, if he doesn't stay healthy, there is a ceiling to what he can be as a player and what he can mean for the sport. And so it is in the Marlins' best interest, our best interest, and the sport's best interest for him to stay on the field. Our other questions about this team, who is the second best pitcher on the 2023 Marlins behind Sandy Alcantara? Does that huge uh, flop quartet of Stallings, Wendell, Soler, and Avi Sayel bounce back? Do any of the young hitters like Jesus Sanchez, Brian De La Cruz, Xavier Edwards, Jacob Amaya, who they got for Miguel Rojas, do any of those guys actually hit? And is this a do-or-die year for this front office group? Jordan, where do you want to hop in there? Um, so, the, the you know, who is the second best pitcher? I mean, the good news is that there's a lot of talent here. Jesus Lazardo, who in about an hour and a half is going to make Israel look even worse than they've had the last couple of days. I hope I'm wrong about that. Call that a reverse jinx. Uh, Jesus Lazardo was unbelievable in the second half last season. And is one of the more just pure stuff from the left side, not a lot of lefty starters that have his stuff. So he's probably the safest bet. But man, like beyond him, you know, Edward Cabrera, if you just watch him, you might don't you don't know what his ERA is. Like he looks amazing. Braxton Garrett, you know, he was also really good in the big leagues last year. So he's kind of gotten overlooked. I mean, he's a former first rounder, but when you have so many of these guys, they kind of get lost in the shuffle. And of course, when you're on a bad team, no one's necessarily locking into their starts. Rogers has had a super weird start to his career, but he still shows flashes of someone. So I think Lozardo is the safest pick. I mean, he looks like he could be an all-star pitcher. Um, but the good news is there's a lot of opportunities here for guys to, to step up. And it's what makes the Cueto edition bizarre and also understandable because I, to me, it's like, yes, you want the stability and who doesn't want Johnny Cueto on their team? At the same time, they have so many young guys that the ceiling is so high that I want to see them as much as possible, but clearly they want some stability there. So I'd bet on Lazardo. I think that's the safest pick, but uh, again, it's it's not it's not about that. I think their pitching is going to be good. They're in a pitcher's park. Their pitching has generally been good for the last few years. It's going to be about how the fuck can this offense not be absolutely terrible? And yeah, some of those other four guys are going to have to not be absolutely terrible, which basically all of them were. I mean, Stallings, 67 OPS plus. Soler, 95 OPS plus, but he was hurt. Avi Sile, 65 OPS plus. Wendell, 86. So all of them were bad. I think Soler would be the one I would bet on to kind of bounce back and be a better uh, a better above average hitter. But obviously, Al Garcia, I, I saw this, I, don't, I can't remember who pointed this out, but he is on a very bizarre like seven-year run of alternating good seasons. And so if that is the case, then maybe he is bouncing back in 2023. The anti-Chris Davis. I would yeah. also take Lazardo as the second best pitcher. Mm-hmm. It feels like he's been around forever because our his real breakout was that AL wildcard game pre-pandemic 2019 where the A's lost, but he threw three incredible innings against Tampa. Remember that? Yeah. And, and he's also he's, you know, been, been traded twice. So right. He's yeah. still only 25. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot left here. I, we've seen pitchers develop later on in their careers. I am a huge believer in Lazardo, and I think he will be an all-star this season. Any of these young hitters, Sanchez, uh, De La Cruz, Xavier Edwards, friend of the show and Jacob Amaya, like, 
the Marlins, as good as that track record is at developing pitchers, it's been that bad and more developing hitters. They have already pulled the plug on J.J. Blade, who was a first-round pick a number of years ago, dealing him away this offseason. They just... They need one of these guys to be something, man. Or just, they do. Just a they do if they want to have any chance of being like remotely close to the postseason. Um, but at the same time, like that's why you bring in Segura and Arise, who are just as safe as it gets, right? They shot for upside with Garcia and Soler and whiffed in epic fashion, and so instead they've gone back in the other direction and got you know four unbelievable contact merchants in Arise, Segura, uh, Gurriel, and, and Iglesias. We'll see how much they actually play. But like that's going to raise the floor of this offense no matter what. But again, like those guys aren't hitting the ball over the fence. So yes, that is why you are going to need Soler and Garcia to bounce back in in some capacity for sure. We but have, I like Brian De La Cruz a lot. I think he's, we have think talked he's a lot about the idea of the Marlins leaning into you know nineteen eighty three baseball. Just put it in play and run and make a lot of contact. Yeah, run a lot, and, dude. Steal bags, man. Like this is we've seen the stolen bases are up in spring training. If that's going to be true, Jazz should be running again. We don't want him to get hurt, but. Him should be running. Cigar should be running. Like all these guys should be running. Last one. The Kim Ang led front office group took control of this club, I believe, after the 2020 season. So they have been in control for 21 and 22. The big notable thing there is that they spent all that money last year on all the free agents. The leadership group is a little bit more complicated than that. The timeline, do you want to get into that? Yeah, well, bit? I was just going to say that that was going to be my point is <coughs> the. Yes, you know, Kim Ang came in right after 2020, but the leadership under her, both in player development, in scouting, in, in like that has shifted a couple times already since um, she's, you know, come in and become the GM. So it's hard to fully judge it. They just had two very different off seasons. But at the same time, that's the question, right? Like, can they show enough this year to make it feel like that is the group that should continue to be leading this team? Because... While I don't think it's postseason or bust because I don't think Bruce Sherman is an idiot, I do think that they cannot lose 90 games again. Like that, that cannot happen again for to feel like this is moving in the right direction. That's and so I, I, that, that's what I think the main question is, right? I mean, we said about the Nats, but right, what is, what does this particularly front office leadership look like, you know, a year from now? And what does success look like for this team? Well, mm-hmm. the over under. Or sorry, I forgot about the barometer bonds. Our barometer bonds here is Jazz. It's not complicated. Yep. If he's good and healthy, it's a big deal. If he's hurt and doesn't play and isn't very good, it's also a big deal. He is the straw that stirs the drink. All right, over under here is 75 and a half per Vegas. I'll take, again, the slight over. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. Like, I, 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 maybe I'm, maybe I'm buying in too much. To I definitely believed way too much in the offseason last year. Not that I thought they were going to suddenly be winners, but I was, I was, I was encouraged by the moves they made last season, and it was a catastrophe. Um, I just think Arise and Segura are so much safer. I think Arise is such a beast, and I do think that enough of that young pitching will will take steps forward. And I think the pitching is just just good. So. Um, I'll take I'll take the slide over, but they're still not stiff in the postseason, I don't think. I will take the over not only on 75 and a half, I'll take the over on 80, their projected fan graphs total. And here is why. A name we have not mentioned yet in this preview is Skip Schumacher, who is the mm. new skipper of the Miami Marlins. Mm-hmm. And I, my friend, I am a believer. I think that Don Mattingly was maybe not always the best fit. For this team, and I think that a little bit of new blood and new energy in that clubhouse is going to go a long way. 
the Marlins have not always done the little things well, right? And I think that Skip Schumacher in talking to him, him having been a bench coach for a while, like I think he is going to be very good at that type of thing. I think he is incredibly smart. And I, whereas like by the end of Mattingly, I didn't like trust him to get the most out of every player. Mm. I think Schumacher is going to be that type of manager. Mm. And so I am going to take the over. I am optimistic on the 2023 Marlins. Come on, Marlins. Make us proud. Let's move on to the Philadelphia Phillies. Jake's beloved Philadelphia Phillies, who are projected to win 86 games. 86 games. Didn't they watch the postseason? This team's going to win 120. Well, last year, they won 87, and it didn't matter. They made it all the way to the World Series. They were, of course... The story of October until they ran into the team that was way better than them. But (laughs) that doesn't mean they have not put themselves in position now to where we are considering them, you know, clear World Series contenders, which we would have laughed at no matter how much talent they had on their roster until they showed us what they were capable of in 2022. They also had a very interesting winter out the door. Noah Syndergaard, Zach Eflin, Gene Segura, Kyle Gibson, David Robertson, and then they traded away Matt Vierling and Nick Maton for reliever Gregory Soto, who is one of a handful of guys on the way in. Craig Kimbrell, ponytail Craig Kimbrell and long flowing locks Matt Strom will join him in the bullpen. I'm very high on Strom. Josh Harrison signed as infield depth. Taiwan Walker joins the club as their four starter. He got a big hunk of money. Speaking of big hunks of money, Trey Turner, one of the signings of the offseason, is the shortstop for the next 11 years in Philadelphia. Let's quickly run through that starting rotation, that starting lineup, and that bullpen. Behind the dish is JT Realmuto, one of the best catchers, if not the single best catcher in the world, in my opinion, the most underrated player in baseball. First base, Reese Hoskins. Second base, Bryson Stott, who moves over from short. Short will be Turner. Third base, Alec Bohm, who I am irrationally high on yet again. The outfield will probably be Brandon Marsh in center field, Kyle Schwarber in left, and Nick Cassianos in right, with Derek Hall DHing until Bryce Harper gets back from his injury. I would imagine a scenario where Dalton Guthrie gets some time in the outfield, pushing Hall to the bench against left-handed starters, and Castellanos or Schwerber would become the DH in that scenario. The rotation is Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, Taiwan Walker, Ranger Suarez, who was awesome in the postseason, and Bailey Falter. And not Andrew Painter. And not Andrew Painter. Uh, so the bullpen looks like Sir Anthony Dominguez, Jose Alvarado, Kimbrell, Gregory, Soto, and Matt Strop. A lot of velo to be had there. Terrifying. Not just in the talent level, but in terms of unpleasant to face. I don't know there's a more unpleasant 7, 8, ninth inning than some version combination of Sir Anthony, Alvarado, Kimbrell, and Soto. Bring an arm guard. Yeah, you better be. Yeah, I, I I would say that Evo Shield should be sponsoring Philly's opponents all season long. <laughs> um, but yes, Gregory Soto, of course, a huge addition. I had not that I'd forgotten about Kimbrel, but I don't think it's totally like set in with me that they have uh, gone after Kimbrel and, and added him to this mix. All right, let's get into our five biggest questions for the Phillies season. 
Uh, we begin with number one. What does Bryce Harper's season look like? That is encompasses a lot of things, right? That is, when does he come back? That is, is he ever playing defense? That is, is he immediately back to looking like one of the best hitters in the world, like he was before he decided to get surgery? Everything Bryce Harper related, of course, is top of mind. Our second question is also related to that, but it's before. Uh, who is DHing before Bryce Harper gets back at an undetermined time during the summer? Who is getting the majority of those at-bats? We just mentioned Derek Hall, but Derek Hall might strike out 100 times in the first two weeks and they decide, up oh, this is not, not the option. So that's definitely a question. Maybe related to that second question, Nick Castellanos. What's going on there? What can he do anything? Can we he was making these amazing catches in the outfield in the postseason and everyone's like, look how look how much he cares. Well, let's also remember what Nick Castellanos said out loud during the postseason, which is that it is harder for him to focus during the regular season. And so if if that is still true, uh, I'm still going to be questioning his defense despite his thousand fielding percentage during the year last year. But more importantly, I don't care what he's doing in the outfield. If he can't hit, then I really then I'm really worried because uh, they paid him a lot of money to hit and he was not doing a, a whole lot of that in 2022. Question number four, do they extend Aaron Nola? I don't think so, but <laughs> can they? We know John Middleton's willing to spend. And question number five, does that trio, the remaining daycare members, <laughs> now that Veerling and Mayton are gone, that trio of Bryson Stott, Brandon Marsh, and Alec Bohm, can any of them become a legitimate motherfucker superstar baseball player jake those are our five biggest questions which one is is i know you're thinking about the phillies 24 7 but of these questions which of them stand out i would like to start with nick castellanos who had an absolutely inexplicable season last year it, i think injury definitely had something to do with it his expected woba his expecting batting average year over year just fell off a complete cliff it was just so far out of line with the previous slug, performances. The slug dropped 200 points. <laughs> like, that he could only hit 13 homers in Philadelphia is while, while getting 558 plate appearances. Like, again, I know he was probably playing through some injuries here and there. That is concerning, to say the least. Two mile an hour drop on his average exit velocity, 10% drop on his hard hit percentage, 4 percent drop on his barrel percentage like he was just simply worse everywhere across the board as a hitter and because of his one-dimensional nature as a baseball player that's the whole value like he was not paid a hundred million dollars to make cool catches in October so he is going to need to hit I believe he has what four more years left on this contract and so Things could get pretty ugly in paradise if that does not turn around pretty quickly. It's not for a lack of trying. Like, Cassiados is an elite cares baseball oh, yeah. player. Like, yeah. he. This is not questioning effort or wanting to be like the dude obviously wants to be a better hitter than this, but for whatever reason, it went very south very quickly. And so it's, it's so funny because that 2021 Reds outfield, right? With Winker and Castellanos were so amazing. And you would not maybe guess that Winker actually had the better season by at least some metrics last year just because he was reaching base so often and, you know, Castellanos never draws any walks. Um, but both of those guys just were just so disappointing on their new teams. Of course, took different costs to get them there. But Castellanos is still there. Of course, I think that the postseason run and some of the moments that he had certainly kind of 
get it, got him back in the good graces of, of the fan base. But like you said, like they're not going to wait around. Like if this dude is still has a OPS under 700 in June, like it's, it's, it is going to get ugly. I agree with you. Absolutely. And that's especially true if it, his big contract precludes John Middleton from breaking open the piggy bank for Aaron Nola. Now it's hard for fans to criticize Middleton at this point when he's, he's had the quotes about, you know, no one will remember me when I die for how much money I made, which is like the coolest thing an owner's ever said. But Aaron Nola, who will become a free agent this offseason, has been around the whole time. He is the longest tenured Philly. He has been great pretty much throughout. He is probably one of the 20 best pitchers in the world. It is always iffy, as we talked about earlier with Steven Strasburg, extending a pitcher on the wrong side of, I believe, 30, right? Is he 30 yet? Aaron He's going to turn 30 this summer. Yep. And so there, there's real risk there. That being said, they do not have a whole lot of high-level pitching depth. They do have Griff McGarry and Andrew Painter and Mick Abel, which is a pretty good place to start. That being said, like, I don't think the 2024 Phillies can afford to not have Aaron Nola. Yeah, and uh, I think that, you know, they, they just gave Taiwan Walker a, a, a long-term deal, and we could talk about him in a second, but I I agree with you. And, you know, Wheeler, Wheeler is, he's got, what, how many years left for Wheeler? I mean, he's got only two years left, so... And and like we saw, like it's easy to just point at McGarry, Abel, and Painter and be like, oh my God, we'll see there's the next rotation. I mean, what more do you need to see? Like how, how many injuries do we need to have remind us that it's never that simple? You never pencil in these guys years in advance. That's just not how it works. Uh, and so I, I agree with you. And But at the same time, if you're Nola, it's, it's all the more reason to, to hold out for, for a mega, mega payday. Because remember, he did sign an extension earlier in his career that has made him look rather underpaid. For the last few seasons, so now you could say, okay, well, he's already you know banked you know fifty million dollars. You can also say that he's probably thinking, damn, I deserve a whole lot more because I've been one of the best and most durable pitchers for the last five seasons. So that is definitely an interesting plot point there. Um, and then if Stott, Marsh, and, and Bohm, like I think Stott is probably the safest to just be good, normal second base, reaches base a lot, not counting on the power to necessarily blossom at all, but he's a good player. He'll bat eighth or ninth. Great player. Well, to that's have. the thing with all yeah. three of these players that I think is really interesting is that there's yeah. a high floor here, right? Yeah. Where like Bohm makes so much hard contact mm-hmm. that even last year when the defense was met and he wasn't hitting for a lot of power, like he's still like a league average hitter. Yeah. A little bit above league average hitter who, you know, isn't like he's not a horrible player. No. You know what I mean? No. He's a totally reasonable guy that could bat six and play third base. Same thing with Stott, gets on base a ton. Plays is going to be a really good defensive second baseman now that he's moved over from short. And then, like Brandon Marsh, with all, you know, he's hilarious, but there's real power there. He's going to run into 15 bombs a year and he's an elite defender and center. And so all of these guys will get, will be in the starting lineup every day. But with each of them, these are all top prospects. These, I believe, were all first round picks, all incredibly talented guys who have another gear in there somewhere. And I th- am a big believer in Alec Bohm to start elevating the baseball more and turn into a guy who hits 25 home runs a year. That is the guy that I am banking on. I mean, that <laughs> – like for him, the either you become a good third baseman, which we've seen flashes of it, 
right? And you hit 280 and slug 400. Or yeah, you add power, right? And I'm that is what we will probably still be saying about Alcom for a while. But I do agree with you that there is a pretty safe floor there. And again, these are the guys that will be at the bottom of the order. They're not being thrown into the middle where it's like you guys have to produce our runs. Let's talk about our Barrow bonds, our barometer bonds for the Phillies. I want to quickly, can we just talk about Bryce Harper? Oh, yeah, I guess we can talk about Bryce Harper. Yeah. The Phillies were able to do what they did last year without Harper. He was in the shelf for what, like two months with his hand um, Mm -hmm. and his elbow situation. And they still did what they did, but they only were able to make that magic in postseason because Bryce Harper is the best hitter in the world when he's locked in, right? Mm -hmm. He will not be around until June or July, probably. And what will he be when he gets back after not having seen live pitching for a while is a totally legitimate question. That being said, if anybody can roll out of bed and rake, it's Harper. But I do think that like so much of what made the Phillies incredible in October was Bryce. Right. And was what he gave to that lineup and what he gave to that team. And we're just going to start the season without him. Now, it's not like there isn't talent on the rest of this roster. So I think they're going to be able to stay in the mix until he gets back. But it will be weird not having him around after he was the main story of last season. 100%. But uh, let's talk about Taiwan Walker. He is our Barrow Bonds. And... To me, and now this is funny timing because I just watched him look ridiculously awesome against Great Britain. Now, I know that's against Great Britain, not against the Braves. So that's important. Um, But he looks really good. He was throwing harder even last night than he has really. I think Sarah Langs had a great note that was he had a strikeout on a 96-mile-an-hour pitch, which he didn't do all of last season. And Tywin Walker, you look at him and you're like, this dude throws his stuff is crazy. And it's just not right. Like he, that's what he was when he came up with the Mariners. Like I remember it well. And it just with some injuries and with like, he's just kind of settled into a very generic mid rotation starter. But now if he's throwing a little bit harder, his splitter is one of the best in the league, very quietly. One of the best in the league. I mean, if I, I, I was skeptical of, of, of really committing to him as the guy that you're betting on with maybe upside remaining, but maybe that was foolish and, and maybe he can kind of take another step forward towards being closer to a number two starter than, num- than a number four starter because that could take this rotation to another level that we'll need that they'll definitely need if the bottom half is going to be so shaky. He really just needs to be a number three. Like he doesn't need to be a frontline guy for this team, mm-hmm. but he needs to make 27 starts. He needs to be durable. The durability here is where the value is coming from because the difference between, you know, if he goes on the shelf for a month, that drop off between him and like Michael Plassmeyer or Christopher Sanchez is a canyon. And he has been durable. He's made 29 starts each of the last two seasons, and I'm sure that was part of it too. Uh, But it's just weird, right? Like 7.6K per nine. Like I just look at, and when I watch him, I'm like, there's got to be more here. You know, he's going into his age 30 season. And, and what I saw last night for, for Team Mexico, I mean, maybe maybe there is another gear there and, and, and the Phillies are going to be looking really, really, really good. All right. The over-under for this team is 89 and a half, projected for 86. But the over-under is 89 and a half. Great example of obviously Vegas knows that <laughs> uh, people are going to be uh, quite confident in the Phillies. I think I have to go a little bit under here. Um, but what do you think? I'm going to take the over. 
uh, I think the new schedule is going to help them not having to play the Braves and the Mets so often. I think having Brandon Marsh in center from a defensive perspective over the course of a full season is a sneaky big deal for them. Mm-hmm. I think the infield defense with Turner is huge because it allows Stott to move over to second. Like I think they are going to improve a lot defensively. Oh, and then, you know, with the first half of the year, if you have Castellanos or Schwarber DHing and you get Dalton Guthrie in a corner, like I think they are going to convert more batted balls into outs than they did last year. And that is really going to help them. Another year of development for Alec Bohm at third base, who's shown that he can get better over there. Real Muto is always incredible behind the plate. If friend of the show, Reese Hoskins can catch the baseball at first, then I think we'll be okay. I will take the over here. I think it'll be around 91, 92 wins for the Phillies. Wow. Everyone listening cannot believe that Jake Mintz has taken the over on the Philadelphia Phillies. We are going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a special guest to talk about the New York Mets. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Our NL East preview rolls on, and we are happy to be joined by a very special guest, our Fox Sports colleague and a good friend. It is Disha Thosar here to talk about your New York Mets, because everyone listening is a Mets fan. Disha, how are you? Hello. Ready to talk about Mets baseball, baby. Let's go. Disha, how has your relationship with the New York Mets changed since you moved off the beat and over to Fox, where the daily heartbeat of this team does not impact your mental health to the same level. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't. My life has changed because my mental health is better, but my relationship with the team uh, is a little weird because I think the team is still used to me being around. So when I got to spring training, uh, Francisco Lindor was like, oh, what are you doing here? I'm used to just being the guys. I was like, cool. Okay, well, I'm here now. Used to being the only woman on the Mets beat. So I think they got used to that a little bit too. So who knows what they're doing when I'm not there. But yeah, it's it's definitely still weird with the team, but good. I think the distance is good for both of us. Good. Also, That's good to hear. Also, you know, you you are, there is still a reason we're having you on. You are still very much plugged into this group. And so, uh, so yeah, so we, as we've been doing with, with the other teams, let's, let's first review. Now we are talking about the Mets fourth because they're projected to win 92 games, which is less than the Braves and we're counting up. But what happened last year? What, what happened in a short little summary of what happened in 2022? What happened last year? Basically, the Mets were good. They were good all year. Uh, it felt it felt like the Braves were not actually chasing them, even though they were supposed to be being chased in first place. But there was sort of this inevitable feeling that one of the two teams, the Braves and Phillies, is going to catch up. Uh, and it did. The Mets in classic Mets form. This has happened all four years that I covered the team as a beat writer. They just collapse in September. Um, so it, it's really good that it, that's dependable and consistent. <laughs> Uh, when covering the team, but really, I think uh, there there's just a lot of heart and confidence and push that comes from um, the the leaders of this team early in camp, uh, and I think to some extent that begins to die out. And I I think they still haven't struck that balance of rookies and veterans who know what they're doing. Uh, So last year was a sort of complete collapse at the end. Fans were not even showing up to the wildcard series at City Field. It was mostly an empty stadium and it was not exactly a 
large blowout to even warrant that. Uh, so I think that all draws back to sort of that inevitable feeling late in the season that they were going to collapse anyway, and fans knew it. Uh, so really, it's it's just more of that predictableness from them. I yeah. have we I've talked about this before, but like the Jewiness of that <laughs> like fate, fatalism baked into Mets fandom is so relatable to me and Jordan, even though we're not Mets fans. Like I understand that energy. Well, we're going to lose anyway, so we might as well not even show up. <laughs> but at the same time. For the whole regular season or most of the regular season, it was like they did it. They built this yeah. like juggernaut awesome team. Yeah. And the roster was so impressive. And so many of the pieces that were coming together were just like, holy crap, this team is is legit. Like it, even if you saw the collapse coming, there was no doubt about how good the on-paper talent was. They won, you know, 100 games. So, but as we know, early exit. So we go into this offseason with all of these free agents to be. And they're all they made future Mets. Everyone's a future Met and, as and we now, go into the And now with Steve Cohen, everyone is a future Met and a former Met in Jacob deGrom's case. So, uh, Jake, tell us about uh, who came in and, and who went out the door at City Field, and then we'll get to our questions. Out the door, Chris Bassett, Taiwan Walker, Jacob deGrom, three-fifths of the rotation. In to replace them, Jose Quintana, Kodai Senga, and Justin Verlander. In the bullpen, biggest name out the door there is Seth Lugo. In to replace him, David Robertson. Trevor Williams, friend of the show, he is also gone. James McCann, for the sake of Mets fans, is miraculously no longer on this team. They also added Omar Narvaez to kind of take that spot and Tommy Pham as outfield depth. They retained Brandon Nimmo, Edwin Diaz, and Adam Adovino, all three of which are significant Retentions. They also extended Jeff McNeil, so he'll be around for another number of years. And they came oh so close to adding Carlos Correa and his 300 million olives in Steve Cohen's Hawaii martini to the mix. But that was not the case. And so they enter the 2023 season with a loaded roster. Behind the dish will be Omar Narvaez with the occasional assist from Tomas Nito. Their first baseman is Pete Alonso. Second base is Jeff McNeil. Shortstop, Francisco Lindor. Third base, Eduardo Escobar, who survived Correa Gate. The outfield is Brandon Nimmo in center. Starling Marte, who seems healthy. In right and left field is Mark Canna with Danny Vogelback as a designated hitter against righties. And Darren Ruff against lefties? Let's... Well, well- we're gonna get to that. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get to that. Uh, rotation: Justin Verlander, ever heard of him? Max Scherzer, ever heard of him? Kodai Senga, you've now all heard of him. He's gonna be very important. Carlos Carrasco, and now with the news of Jose Quintana out for the first few months, it looks like it will either be David Peterson or Tyler McGill with some gentleman named Edwin Diaz. He's pretty good as the closer. Adam Adovino, David Robertson, Brooks Raley, another addition. And then Drew Smith. A lot of people hype about Drew Smith. Drew Smith, there was a little run there. Like when the Mets were winning all the time, we were just like going out of our way to like make the last guy in the bullpen also Mariano Rivera. And Drew Smith had a little run there. He is back. Just also mentioning a couple other relievers that are not back. Trevor May, Joely Rodriguez, also no longer on this team. But that is the team. Jake, that's the team. Yep. So we should start asking Disha some questions, I think. I think we should. She's just sitting here nodding her head. 
I didn't know the uh, roster. Thanks for catching me up. Yeah, Jake and Jordan mansplained the entire Mets roster. So to they signed Justin content. Verlander. He used to be with the Tigers. Okay, so honey, uh, did you five honey? Questions. Did you hear about this? <laughs> five questions. Five questions, Deisha. Okay. And these are our five biggest questions. I don't know if they're your five biggest questions. So feel free to add on to your biggest questions. But these are our five. Okay. Our first one: Can the rotation of grandfathers rage rage against the dying of the light? So far, the answer is already no. Jose Quintana out until July. All right. Number two. Do Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer have a tiff? Ooh, that's the word we're going to use for that. Mm. Mm. Number three. What is this bullpen behind Edwin Diaz? And Adovino, I guess. But really, Edwin Diaz, he's kind of in his own tier. Number four. What kind of impact does the trio of Brett Beatty, Francisco Alvarez, Mark Vientos make? And number five, what is Kodai Senga? Those are our five biggest questions. Are those some of your biggest questions coming Definitely into this? Definitely some of those. Yeah, you hit some of them for sure. Okay. Where do you so want which to begin? one stands out? Yeah, where, where should we begin? Uh, Let's see. I do like question number one because I think that in many ways is going to depend on what the Mets do this year. And we're already seeing around the league of pitchers just – going down in spring training with injuries. And uh, really, the Mets had the big blow with Quintana, a slight blow with Senga, but it feels like everyone is waiting for the Scherzer and Verlander injuries. When are they going to happen? How long are they going to miss? Are the Mets covered for that? And as of right now, they're not. With Quintana out, uh, one of their depth pieces in uh, David Peterson is already going to be in the rotation. Uh, That leaves Tyler McGill, who's good. He still has not really fleshed out to what his ceiling could be. Uh, but, But really, the Mets, beyond those two guys, I think right now the hype is that they have such great starting pitching depth, as we know, uh, by doing rankings, they really don't. That is the the spot that the Mets lack the most is their starting pitching, especially in AAA, the upper minor leagues. Uh, so there's really pressure. I don't like describing it as staying pressure for staying healthy. That doesn't really make sense. Like, what could you possibly do besides not really moving around and like not leaving your house? Like yoga and water. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, the Mets should hydrate. Uh, but really, that has been a problem for Yoannis <laughs> in the past. <laughs> we have seen that as an issue, but I I think that like I am so not worried about Verlander. I think he's just a freak. I think he's a cyborg. I think he's one of one. I think he the fact that he didn't get a CJ until all this like like he's fresh. He's chilling. Sure, he's older than all these other guys, but I am not worried about him. Scherzer, with the kinds of bizarre injuries he has had dating back to even the 2019 World Series, yes, the elbow seems to always be intact, but there's all these other things that are always going on with him that make me most worried about him, I think. And then these other guys are just are just total wild cards with, with we, of course, we've seen even Senga has not exactly had like a huge workload uh, in Japan. Um, but you, you mentioned something there that I didn't know was a certain thing. So it seems like it's going to be Peterson and not McGill. Yeah, Peterson seems to have the more experience anyway doing this role, and McGill was has injured and sort of shut down last year for the majority of the season. So I think Peterson is more ready to slide into that. Uh, they haven't said officially, but that's my educated guess. Uh, but even with Peterson there, I think with Carlos Carrasco at the back, uh, there's not a lot of confidence or to put your hat on any of these arms, really, especially with Quintana out. I think that's just a really big hole in the rotation. And the biggest thing now is, of course, results, but no one's really concerned about that. I do agree with you that I think Verlander will be fine. Uh, Scherzer, 
big question mark of when that injury is going to hit. It's going to be at some point. We just don't know when. And uh, Senga and his adjustments uh, to the season, I think, is that's one of their biggest worries of how they're going to cover for any injuries should they and when they happen. So let's talk about Senga then now. What is the what have the early reviews been in camp? What type of pitcher are we looking at? I think there was a consensus over the free agent period that the Mets paid him like a mid-rotation starter where there were teams that did not see him at that level. What has it looked like so far? Yeah, I think he's exactly that. I think I can see him slide in as a number three, a number four. Uh, there's potential maybe. And it's hard to really say right now as he adjusts to so many things. Uh, his bullpens in particular are really rough. He's just missing a lot, hitting the dirt a lot, uh, complaining about uh, the the slope, the, the mound height, and how that's a big difference from what he's used to. Uh, and I think all of this, just by knowing how long it takes to adjust, it will take some months to get used to it. But in the meantime, he has the advantage of hitters not knowing at all about his pitch for his, his stuff in general. So I think that will aid him while he continues to adjust the beginning of the season. Uh, it'll be interesting if he kind of loses some of that after hitters adjust to him. But right now, yeah, he looks exactly like middle of a rotation starter. Uh, the Mets are acting almost, it feels like they took a chance on him. Uh, maybe it is because of these adjustments. They're being kind of mum about some weird physical issue that he had before coming to camp. They have explained zero of it. And Senga also gave this weird answer of like, talk to the team. And Billy Upler was like, uh, we don't say that. We just don't have to tell them anything. And it's like, what? Um, these are the things, Disha, that like, the yeah. Mets somehow, it's not even just like, the, I'm talking specifically about how they talk about injuries. Okay. Just the track record, no matter who's the GM or who's the president or who's the owner that is still- Or who's the trainer. Who's the trainer. This is still consistently bizarre and maddening is the way, and they're not the only team. I know that communication and and how much they share about injuries, is, is this is an issue across the league in, in often cases, but for some reason, it's so often with them that the public communication and and oftentimes like- a clear dis like just disconnect between what the player feels and what the front office feels and what the manager feels and what like that just seems to always happen. And if we're already dealing with that before he's thrown a major league pitch, I'm just like, oh come on. Yeah. But I'm I'm rooting for him. I mean, he's he is even in the spring training outings, like you could tell this stuff is more than good enough. So it's just going to be all those other little things adjustment-wise that is, is going to make a big difference, I think. Yeah, I think to add just one thing is I'm not worried about Senga adjusting to New York and that that narrative oh, yeah. that we love of, you know, starters and big star players are obviously getting affected by the media and all he's embracing all of it. It's actually totally. in some ways, the media is probably less than what he faces at home. So yeah. I think in that way, he's totally prepared and really it's just the stuff and mm. uh, the clubhouse already likes him. So mm. he said, that's there. good. Yeah. I'm, I'm rooting for him. Like he's, I, you know, it's always seems like somewhat of a mystery box with these guys, even with the track records that they have. Uh, but I believe in him. For me, it, it is just the health and the workload that I just don't know what I'm counting on there. So, uh, but he is going to be important, of course, with those pitchers. But let's flip back over to the offense because, as we we talked about, you know, we have this you know under 26 project going on at Fox Sports, and the Mets ranked very poorly in that. A lot of that was because they have no pitching. But this trio of Vientos, Alvarez, and and Beatty it seems like Beatty's the one that has caught the most attention. I know you wrote a great story about Alvarez and his confidence, but it seems like Beatty so far seems like the one, if I had to bet now, who's going to get the most played appearances and make the most impact in 2023, he would be my pick. My question is, how does that happen? What position does that happen at? 
How do we get Brett Beatty to 400 at-bats in the big leagues this year? Is that even possible? Yeah, and I think a lot of that is the Mets right now are banking on Eduardo Escobar picking up where he left off in September. Uh, He was dealing with some private issues, family or otherwise, that really affected him in those middle uh, months where he was really not good. And uh, when he bounced back, that was sort of the narrative with that Buck. Buck and Escobar are also very close. So he's always going to favor Escobar over sort of playing the younger guys uh, that he doesn't know. He really values his veteran leadership, that he keeps things light. Uh, he knows everyone. And all of that is his off-field attributes. But I think when we'll see, to answer your question, when Beatty will come on the field, uh, if Escobar has another month, two-month slide, I really don't see how the Mets can let it go on any longer than it already did last year. He really struggled through those middle months and uh, Escobar really escaped getting uh, benched in the middle of the season, mainly because the Mets were already doing so well. So if that is the scenario again, and Escobar can kind of just hide in the shadows with a a lower OPS, then maybe Beatty doesn't get that call up. But I I think really at this point, not only does he deserve to show what the Mets, what he has, but he's already proved it and, and he can bring that sort of spark. And I think Beatty really goes off of the consistency uh, factor. He's not really a star. Alvarez gets all that star attention and Beatty thrives uh, when he's not exactly uh, in the spotlight. So all of those things I think line up at some point we'll see Beatty, but of course to start the year, I would expect Escobar to be at third base. But you think it'll be at third? Like you don't think we're going to be forcing him into the outfield or DH at bats? I think maybe late season, if there's a scenario where Escobar really did not slip at all over the course of this huge season, then yeah. But I think so far, Beatty has not spent any time, barely any time anywhere else besides third base. So Got it. I think that's where he will come. Escobar is playing with house money, though. I mean, he there was like, you know, two weeks this offseason where he he thought he was cooked. He thought he was done. Yep. Thought he was going to get traded. Thought Correa was in there. And now he's like, he's got a new life. He's got a new lease on the whole thing. He sure does. I mean, even then, like if he can get he's not even getting at bats for Team Venezuela right now. So I I would say that if he could get warmed up there, it could be good for his case in April. But for me, I just view it as a really short leash, uh, just given everything that transpired over the winter with Correa and Beatty then potentially getting traded. So really, the writing feels on the wall. He has to do is really perform and perform well. Uh, We got to. Are we overrating the Verlander and Scherzer relationship as far as a narrative to watch? I think that people inside baseball like want to make more of this than maybe it is. But how could this realistically play out? Because they're both publicly going to be like, I'm here to win. That's all that matters. I don't need to be friends with everybody, whatever. But like, what would it even take? Sorry, Jake, go ahead. I just want to say for people who maybe don't know, Verlander and Scherzer played together in Detroit. When Verlander was up and a big deal, that's when Scherzer joined the Tigers and Verlander was reportedly not the nicest to Scherzer at that time. Max Scherzer then turns in to Max Scherzer and has maintained, reportedly, allegedly, a bit of a grudge against Verlander over the years. And they do not particularly like one another as people. Will that, one, Disha, bubble up publicly at some point this year, and two, have a legitimate impact on the Mets this season? Uh, One, I say yes, and two, I say no. 
And here's why, because the New York media is relentless, as we know, and they will never stop pushing for you. You, you will never there. stop. That's us, the New York media. That's us. <laughs> it is, yeah. Which is, I, I will compliment ourselves here. Let's go. You should just talk like in the third person. <laughs> So good. Yeah, no, a perfect example of a storyline that is sort of faded, but kept being brought up by members of the media uh, is the Francisco Lindor giving a car to Jeff McNeil story. And uh, this is this narrative is obviously not going to rest until we know what car. So in that way, even though it's kind of faded into the shadows, uh, I think this sort of tiff between Scherzer and Verlander is going to show up, but I don't think it will impact the team at all because both of these guys are just cutthroat competitiveness and uh, they're always going to put the team first. So I think in that way, there's really nothing to see, but their lockers are very far apart from each other, at least in spring training. And uh, I did note that. So that's, that's what I'll add to, to that narrative. And it's mm. not like they have to play together on the field, right? It would be <laughs> they're not thing. catching each other. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And I guess there's also how much can they actually build off of each other, right? Scherzer and DeGrom really had a thing going where they would share their tips, even Bassett. Like there are times in the Mets dugout where Scherzer is holding court and they're the younger pitchers, even veteran pitchers are looking up to him. Uh, so I do wonder what that dynamic will be like between both of them, because obviously their value to younger pitchers would be invaluable. So if they could kind of do that anyway and help out the other pitchers on the Mets team, uh, that would be good. But is that going to happen is sort of my question. I can't remember. I think I saw Trey Turner talking about this, how like people are scared of Max when they first you know, joins the Dodgers, whatever, they were all scared of him. But that when he's not pitching, he's he's the man. He's he's totally cool and ha like happy to chat and do, do all these things, right? Like, I don't personally get the sense that Verlander is as, you know, warm and fuzzy, even on his off days. But prove, hey, you can prove me wrong, you know? Yeah. We'll, we'll see. But, and I think, yeah. Probably so far, but I yeah. guess both ways. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what, what that looks like. Um, because I do agree, right? It's maybe they take turns on their off days in the dugout being like, all right, now you're going to learn from me. Listen up, Tyler McGill. Take a seat, buddy. Like, you're, don't listen to what Max said. All right. Listen, I, I'll tell you my curveball grip and you'll know what's going on. <laughs> my favorite Mets spring training thing, and then we'll, we'll jump to the barometer bonds here, <laughs> is that Tyler McGill, there was like that report that he's purposefully not throwing as hard. Right. Right. Like, he's like, I used to throw 99. But now I'm throwing 94 on purpose so that I can do it in the seventh inning. And yep. everyone's like, cool, man. Like, all right. Sure, bro. That's sick. Awesome. Sick. <laughs> it's like, I, I hope that's the real truth because otherwise you sound very goofy. Um, but yes. Uh, all right. Let's move to our barometer bonds, our barrel bonds. There, Listen, there are a lot of really famous, awesome players we have literally not talked about. Nimmo and Alonzo and McNeil and Lindor, whatever. So maybe it is someone more obvious. But when you look at this roster, who is the most important player in terms of like their success will have a huge impact on the season. Maybe it's something we've already talked about. To me, it's Starling Marte. If we're talking about guys that are not 
first mentioned. And I think we saw that exactly last year when he suffered with a hand injury and a groin injury. It was almost like the Mets were living and dying with whatever yes. Marte does. And I think that works both ways because he sets the lineup. He's at the top. He gets on base. He's kind of just that he's just not looking to do much. He's okay with his single. He's okay with his double. He doesn't have to run that hard at this point. But he also has that swag, right? I think that goes a long way of this Mets identity that we're trying to figure out under the Steve Cohen ownership. Like, who are they? Are they just these goofy goofballs? Are they Pete Alonzo-like? Are they Francisco Lindor-like? Are they Scherzer-like? Who are they? And I think really it comes down to they're kind of like trying to be like Starling Marte. And then when he's not there, there's like this confusion of, well, what do we do now? Like, what even is going on? There's this random and right field. I think it all really gets thrown off when he's not on the field in more ways than just his production being taken out of the lineup. You make a great point because McNeil and Alonzo are not, and Nimmo are not cool. Like, they, they're, they like, good players and are, like, totally fine human beings, but they're not cool. And, like, even Lindor is, like, a different type of – and I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's, like, curated cool, like a like a intentional cool, whereas Marte just walks comfortably in his own skin all the time, yeah, right? He's in his own world, yeah. And he's in his own world in a very, very good way. And mm-hmm. so that is interesting to hear you say that he's crucial from, like, a vibe perspective and not just – but you're right. Like, at the end of last year, when he got hurt, they were talking about him like he was peak Mickey Mantle. They were like, well, without Marte, like, we can't do the laundry and we yeah. can't, like, do our taxes. <laughs> right. It might not be as extreme as that, but there's definitely an element there. When he's not there, it feels really confusing of what the Mets are trying to bring. And they have not upgraded their lineup in any other way this winter. So, really, they're, they're trotting out much of the same guys. So, I think – uh, his health and he's getting older it's going to be really important uh, but as long as he kind of sticks to you know I don't care what I'm doing I just want to hit and I'm not really looking for much else uh, and that has always worked for Marte so he just kind of also needs to stay healthy all right let's move to our over under Disha you come across as someone who has never been to Las Vegas let alone someone who has uh, regularly uh, gambles in the sport of baseball but the over under for the New York Mets this season is 94 and a half. Would you take the over or the under on that number? Uh, I will take slight under. I'm going 91, 92. Yeah. 91, 92. And, and you nailed it. I have not been to Vegas. Can't believe that's that obvious. You just don't come across as someone who is vacationing on the strip uh, and, and, and going to the MGM Grand on a regular basis. Anything else we need to know? About the New York Mets before we say goodbye? No, I think we really covered it. The one topic of the five questions that was not included is um, this much hyped uh, DH battle between Vogelback and uh, Ruff. But I think really that comes down to, for me, uh, are they going to produce at any point? And when they don't, I see either a Mark Mientos or a Francisco Alvarez uh, getting called up because really I don't know what they expect at this point from Darren Ruff that we haven't already seen. Uh, but sure, let's let's trot him out because we traded a bunch of guys uh, to get him is sort of the Mets uh, mentality here. Darren Ruff is close to like Joey Gallo with the Yankees territory where the fan base just bullies him into being traded. Yep, yep. Anything else? How much, for- I was about to say, I don't know how much trade value he has, but apparently a lot. 
<laughs> at least, at least he did at okay. one point. Um, uh, yes. Uh, okay. Uh, Disha Thosar, you have been tremendous. We appreciate working with you at Fox Sports and getting all your Mets and Yankees insight. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be back here on Baseball Barbacast with our Braves chatter. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast. Jake Mintz, that's me. Jordan Schusterman, that's not me. With the end of our National League East preview, and we have reached the end, which means we have reached the top because it is time to talk about the Atlanta Braves, who are projected for 95 wins this upcoming season. What happened in 2022? Well, they had the aforementioned incredible comeback to catch the Mets at the end of the season, beating them in that series at home in the second to last series of the year. They made the playoffs. They split with the Phillies in games one and two of the postseason. And then Spencer Strider and Charlie Morton got obliterated by the Phillies at Citizens Bank Park. And that was pretty much that. How was their winter? Jordan, tell me about it. Was, it. it was weird. It was weird. They spent like 15 cents on free agents and then traded for Sean Murphy despite having one of the best catching situations in all of baseball. So in comes Sean Murphy behind the dish in the outfield, Jordan Luplo and Sam Hilliard. Whoa, in the bullpen. Joe Jimenez. That's a nice little trade. He seems pretty good. Nick Anderson back from the dead. Lucas Litke. Coming down from New York out. Dansby Swanson is not on the Braves anymore. That seems significant. Kenley Jansen is gone. Adam Duvall is gone. Luke Jackson, oh, he is gone. And William Contreras was traded to the Brewers, not the team that traded them, Sean Murphy. Um, uh, Jake, let's let's run through uh, this, this uh, defensive alignment and rotation. Behind the dish, it will be Sean Murphy and Travis Darno splitting the time. And I would imagine that the other who is not catching at, for any given game will see a lot of run at designated hitter alongside Marcel Uzuna, who was horrible offensively last year and even worse in the outfield. Going around the dirt, Matt Olson in his second year with the club at first base. Ozzie Albies, who was injured for a good chunk of 2022 at second shortstop is one of the big questions about this club. It looks like it'll be a combo of Vaughn Grisham and Orlando Arcia. Third base will be Austin Riley. And in the outfield, Michael Harris, the second and center, who was the rookie of the year last year, Ronald Acuna Jr. in right looking for a bit of a bounce back and Eddie Rosario, 2021 postseason hero in left the rotation. Max Freed, Kyle Wright, Spencer Strider, and Charlie Morton is a really impressive top four. And behind that, uh, the five spot in the rotation is kind of a question mark for this team between Jared Schuster and Mike Soroka and a whole bunch of... Ian Anderson, who they just offered yesterday, who could still come back up and start the fifth or sixth Very game. Odd. But that is the rotation in the bullpen. We got Rysel Iglesias, who they traded for. Last year and was awesome. AJ Minter, very familiar face, as well as Colin McHugh. And then the aforementioned Jimenez and Nick Anderson. All right, Jake. Five big questions for your Atlanta Braves. We begin with Spencer Strider. Can he break the single season K per nine record for starting pitchers? 
This is not necessarily a record that everybody knows, <laughs> so it's a little bit of a, of a, a fudging of, of uh, or amping up Spencer Strider more than that he even, I mean, listen, he, he was unbelievable last year. He had 202 strikeouts in 131 innings, and that's why we're asking this question, because the record for a qualified starting pitcher, I believe, is Garrett Cole in 2019. Yes, um, and Strider when, had uh, decimal points lower K per nine than Garrett Cole. And while this isn't the sexiest headline-grabbing record, it is simply striking out batters at the best rate ever for a starting pitcher, right? Yeah. The strikeouts in a season record will probably never be touched just because, like, that's, I assume, Nolan Ryan who threw, like, 800 innings and, like, we'll never get to that again. But for K per nine, Strider could very much strike out batters at a better rate than anybody else ever. And it's just kind of a good entry way to think about Strider, who was transcendent in his rookie season, got hurt down the stretch, and had definitely saw his velo suffer in that start against the Phillies in October. Can this guy be one of like the five best pitchers in the National League? Like, can he win a Cy Young, Jordan? I mean, he, yeah, when you're, when you're, Sitting dudes down that often. He has one of the best pitchers in the league with his fastball. I yeah, I don't see why not. It's just going to be a matter of of durability because again, he he was not the same after the injury, and he didn't even make it through you know thirty starts. So uh, that's going to be really the the question with him is is just durability. I have no doubt that if he is on the mound, he's going to be striking dudes out. Number two, and this is probably the biggest question in terms of the national conversation around the Braves is what happens at shortstop. Uh, Grissom has been really good in the spring. Arcia, not as much. It seems like they probably want it to be Grissom based on the Braves just constantly wanting to give the job to the younger player, which makes sense and has worked out so well for them so often in the past. Um, and then Braden Shoemakes hanging out as their default top prospect in the worst uh, farm system in baseball. Um, so he could maybe appear at some point this year as a, as a, as a very capable defender. Uh, but yeah, what, what the hell happens there? There's a lot of options. That, listen, we're still talking about down the order. This is going to be an awesome lineup no matter what. Um, so maybe we're overrating the importance of this. But still, when you had the – I mean, Dansby played short. I know you wrote about this, but he played shortstop for the Braves in like 95% of the games over the past however many seasons, and now that will not be the case. So shortstop in Atlanta is very interesting. I think it's interesting because they seemed like a great fit for Miguel Rojas or a player like that who is just Elvis kind of Andrews. A, Elvis, Elvis Andrews, Andrews, like a yeah. no shit defender who can offer value with the glove in a lineup that's already going to score a lot of runs. They have opted to stay with the in-house options between Von Grisham and Orlando Arcia. The conversation around Grisham, and I think you mentioned this the other day, has been about his defense. Can the defense play at the position? And I think you and I are actually less worried about that. We're more, con not concerned, but wary of the bat and yeah. how it will play in his sophomore season. He was obviously awesome when he came up, had a 1,000 OPS for like a month, and then he was pretty bad down the stretch and was not starting in the postseason. You never played in AAA. Like they, they zoomed into the big leagues. I know when you see Michael Harris immediately succeed, it's like, oh, it's fine. He'll, he'll just do that too. But if he comes out and struggles offensively, now it's like, well, we got to send him back to AAA. So to me, though, them not signing a shortstop makes me believe they fully believe in him, even if it's not this season, as the long term answer there. And so they didn't want to block him in that sense, um, even if it's for the end of this season or for next year, or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, I think that they want him to win the job. And if they can say, hey, dude, 
focus on your defense, bat eighth. If you can be a league average hitter, he's still, what, 21, 22, then that's fucking awesome. You know, it's fine. We're not expecting you to have the season Dansby Swanson just had. So, uh, but it's, it, I could see that kind of getting a little wacky pretty fast. I am a little pessimistic on it. I think that Arcia will be the shortstop. Like he'll be the starter at some point this season. The fact that Grisham lost the job at the end of last year during the playoffs is really instructive, I think. And Arcia was a really good defensive shortstop for like five years in Milwaukee. And just because since he came to Atlanta, that hasn't been his position because Dansby Swanson's been there. I understand he's a couple years older and a couple pounds heavier and his body is literally like different now. He's added weight and muscle since he last played shortstop, but I have faith in him being able to be a good defensive shortstop. And I think that he will see a significant amount of time over there. I also believe that there's a lot of attention being paid to this conversation because it's such a glaring, obvious hole. I really don't think it's going to matter all that much because this lineup is so deep and they're so stacked at so many other positions that they can kind of survive and win the division even if shortstop is a bit of a question mark all season long. Next couple questions. How does the catching tandem strategy play out between Darno and Murphy? Can Acuna get back to being one of the best five players in baseball? And I'm going to pivot on the last question, Jordan. What? Who has the fifth most starts for the Atlanta Braves? Like, who is the five starter on this team behind Morton Strider, Wright, and Freed? Where do you want to happen? Yeah, so last year it was Ian Anderson who made 22 starts and was just not very good. And he was a guy who seemed like an ascendant young starting pitcher. Obviously a former top five pick and he looked great in the postseason and it was like, why wouldn't it just be Ian Anderson, you know? He's clearly struggled to continue to take steps. He's had basically the reverse of what has happened with Kyle Wright where it was like, "Ah, is Kyle Wright ever going to figure it out? And it's like, oh shit, all right, now he's awesome. Um, So, you know, I'm not thinking Anderson is doomed. I imagine he's still the safest bet health-wise than any of those other guys. So I think I still would bet on it being Anderson to make the most starts. But I also kind of feel like it's the same thing with the lineup is I don't know how important that's going to be if the rest of the rotation is healthy and good. So It's Anderson, Soroka, and Bryce Elder yeah. are the other options there. I, I felt like this was a landing spot for Michael Waka, maybe still could be for Dylan Bundy. Right. This is feels like they need one more older guy because one of Wright, Freed, Morton, and Strider is going to miss some time. And having two of Elder, Anderson, and Soroka, who has his own injury question marks in the rotation for a lot of the year, I am much more worried about that than I am about shortstop. Um, let's talk Acuna quickly. Um, he was one of the best players in the league, very clearly, when he arrived. And he was decidedly not that last season. I mean... He had his moments, but he had a 764 OPS. And he only played in 119 games, but that's still over a sample size of over 500 plate appearances. And he's, wow, he still stole 29 bases. That is amazing. Um, like, he clearly was not the same physical guy. He had flashes where it looked like him, but we know the ceiling is so much higher. And if he can get back to the you know 150, 150 OPS plus or even 140 that he was in his rookie year, now this lineup starts to really scare you in a way that even at times last year it didn't. Um, and so a lot of that was was helped by the fact that Austin Riley was became so amazing. But I think that Acuna really can elevate this back up if he's fully healthy uh, and rolling. So we should not discount how important he is. But well, it's, it, he, it's interesting. Yeah. You take a look at yeah. where his numbers slid. 
yeah. right between 21 and 22 a lot of which i think can still be attributed to the time he missed when he tore his acl i mean the strikeout rate is basically identical he was walking a little bit less he was hitting the ball basically just as hard biggest difference is is in launch angle so his average launch angle in 21 was 18.2 his average launch angle in 22 was 10.8 so that means even if he's hitting the ball just as hard he's not doing as much damage when he is hitting the ball hard and I would be curious whether that has something to do with his uh, like a less of an ability to bend into his legs and get physically under pitches. Think Juan Soto, Pete Christian Yelich, the ability to almost like hockey stick slap shot a ball where you bend your knees and get under it. That's never really been Acuna's like he doesn't really use his lower half in that same kind of way. But I'm interested to see if as he gets further away from that catastrophic injury, does that launch angle get back up to pre-torn ACL levels? Yeah, him becoming an MVP candidate could just make this team clearly a 100-win team again. Um, but our barometer bonds for this team is actually Ozzy Albies, who has also trended in a very strange way. Now, his injury last year certainly uh, you know, put him out of, out of view as Swanson was emerging. But this is a guy that is now entering his seventh season Wow, <laughs> as a 26-year-old. And we just are still wondering if there's another level here. I know he's never really drawn his walks, certainly the last few years. But he had 30 home runs in 2021. Again, this isn't like the offense doesn't have to run through him. But if he is going to be able to unlock something if he's fully healthy again, now that shortstop is much more of an amorphous question the way that it has been, right? It was like, because as Swanson was getting so good, it was like, okay, now we're not as worried about Ozzy breaking out into a bigger way. Now Ozzy's still there. Swanson's gone. Shortstop's a bit of a question mark. Now there's a little bit more focus on Ozzy. Can he take another step forward? Can he get back into all-star form the, the way he has been in the past? Um, also, switch hitting. His switch hitting splits have kind of been all over the place during his career. It's like, should he really only be batting one way? Um, but I, I, I believe in Ozzy. It's just... He, he, he is, we could say this with the Mets too, when we talk about Marte, when you have this many good players, there are some very, very good players and talented players and famous players and high profile guys that really slip through the cracks. I think Ozzy qualifies as that. Just haven't been thinking about him as much, but I definitely will be more this year with Swanson gone. All righty, Jordan, let's talk over under Braves. 96, 96 and a half. They're projected for 95, 96 and a half. I don't know, man. That's a lot of wins. I'll take I'll take the under. I'm gonna take the under. I'll a take little worried over. about the the pitching health. I would say it was yeah. a little concerning, but um, but that's fine. Yeah, they're awesome. They're they're so good. We didn't even talk about Austin Riley. We didn't even talk about like the <laughs> Michael Harris has had one of the best working seasons we've ever seen. Like we're not gonna get to everyone on these previews, but Matt, I think uh, Matt Olson yeah. was like kind of fine last year. He could just go back to being what he was in 21 with Oakland. There's. There's so much upside in this team, and I really love the catching tandem between Murphy and Darno. I think it's going to keep both of them really healthy. I think they're both going to crush it. I think this team does a lot of things really, 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 really well from just a process standpoint, and I would generally – like they're getting to the point now how I feel about the Dodgers where it's just like I'll bet on them. Like <laughs> yeah. that's a team that I trust they've earned that. to, to they've, do it right. They've absolutely earned that. All right, Jake, we previewed the NL East. Uh, any final thoughts before we say goodbye on this record-setting episode of Baseball Barbercast? Rank them. 
Um, How do we finish? I I am I'm fine with the order that we did. I think I I would still pick the Braves to win the division, uh, but and I would still pick the Mets to finish second. But man, I don't know. <laughs> it's like the 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 pitching like. How the pitching goes sideways for both Atlanta, for Atlanta, New York, and, and Philly is going to be most interesting, I think. There is just one injury that could happen in there that could really do because all of their offenses are just fucking awesome, right? Even with Harper out, even with these guys. That I'm not worried about. But I just can see situations where all three of these teams are ha- playing big games with pitchers on the mound that they are not happy about in division races, right? The postseason, hopefully everyone's healthy. doesn't matter. But when these, when they're trying to win the division in September, I could see guys starting those games that none of those fan bases are feeling good about. I, in a bizarre way, it is so funny. Like the Marlins have the best pitching depth in this division and it's not close. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And then it's the Mets. I mean, you can talk about that old rotation all you want, but like I'll take, Eliezer Hernandez, Tyler sure. McGill, and sure. um, Peterson, yeah. David Peterson over Bailey Falter and whomever the heck else is in Lehigh Valley. Like that's mm-hmm. or Atlanta. totally or yeah. Atlanta, right? Yeah. That, true. Um, so yeah, I'll go, I'll go Braves, Mets. I'll do the same thing. I'll do Braves, yeah. Mets, Phillies, Marlins. And I think the same thing happens as it did last year where they get three teams. Well, we will see if those records can get boosted even more playing non, uh, non-conference games, <laughs> non-division games. Uh, but thank you all for joining us on this first lengthy edition of Baseball Barbecast. Thank you to Chris Tyler, our superstar producer. We salute his Australian team forever. Thank you to Disha Thosar for joining us, talking to us about the Mets. We will be back on Friday with our American League East preview. Until then, enjoy the WBC, and we will talk to you soon. Serious XM Podcasts.